you may also like. A show about the things you may also like. Things like pairing food and wine. I love food. I love wine. I love how they go together. And Natalie McLean knows how to put them together. She's authored three books, and her latest, Wine Witch on Fire, is really good. Natalie also has a really good podcast, which I encourage you to connect to. But not until you finish this episode. The next voice you hear will be Natalie's, and we are going to learn about pairing food and wine. I got started late, in my late 20s, but made up for lost time. So I grew up in Nova Scotia with a beer and whiskey-loving family, both of which I found too bitter. Uh, that'd be the drinks, not the relatives, <laughs> though they had a good sense of humor. And so I didn't start drinking wine until I graduated from the MBA program at Western, because I then had the funds to get fancy. And my then-husband and I started going out for dinner. We lived in Toronto in a small apartment. We love food, but we didn't like cooking, and I still to this day uh, do not have those skills, which has served me well, actually. And so, yeah, our first great wine, that aha moment wine, happened at a small Italian bistro when the server said, would you like to try the Brunello? And I thought it was a pasta dish. And how long after that did you make your first trip to Italy for the specific purpose of wine? I, I do a lot of things backwards. So we had gone to Italy before I even had a notion of writing about wine. Because after um, the MBA, I went right into marketing in Procter & Gamble, Crisco and Pringles and food brands, but a far cry from wine. And then I went into high tech. And then it wasn't until I was on maternity leave that I actually had enough brain fog to think, oh, yeah, I'll start writing about wine. Because I'd taken a sommelier program just for fun at night, loved it, but never thought about writing. And so I thought, well, I want to keep my brain alive. So why don't I pitch a local food magazine on finding wine and food pairings online? And that worked. And it went from there. And I didn't go back to my job after maternity leave was over. This is a very informal poll that I've done, but I find that 100% of the people who love wine also love food. Hmm. Very astute. Is the enjoyment of food the gateway drug to wine? It is. It is. And I find, even to this day, it's what I lead with. Uh, food is far less intimidating. You don't look at a mountain of cantaloupes and wonder, where's my vintage chart? How do I know which one to buy? So I offer food and wine pairing classes online at nataliemcclain.com. And I find that a lot of people are far less intimidated if we talk about food and then which wine might pair with those dishes because no one gets uptight about food. I, however, do pick the wine first and then make the food match. But I also choose my earrings first and then the outfit. So I'm not, uh, I'm not typical. I'd be an outlier in any study you would do. I don't know too much about pairing food with wine other than it's a lot of success and failure. And somebody once just told me, and, and feel free to refute this, and I, I suspect you will. Somebody just said, why don't you just drink the bottle of wine you like with the food you like? Pair the wine to the diner, not the dinner, is one of the little bumper stickers I have. And I think you should drink what you like and not get too uptight about finding the perfect pairing because after all, it is just wine. And if it doesn't work out, have a bun in between as a palate cleanser. But I think the other beauty of wine is its diversity, its wild range of styles, and it's worth experimenting, even if it always doesn't work out. So first of all, yes, drink what you like, but then 
experiment. And often what I'll advise my students is if you're looking for something new in the liquor store and you don't want to go to your default wine that you always buy, ask someone in the store who's knowledgeable, okay, I like this wine typically. If I like this, what else would I like? If this, then that. And that will give the person an idea of your budget, your style, but get you out of your rut. How did wine transform your life? Oh, it engaged all of me as a person. So wine is encyclopedic. If you want to dive into it, I often said you could do a liberal arts degree with wine as the central hub. And then the spokes it goes out to, it ties into religion and commerce and business and geography, all, I think, spheres of human endeavor. But then it's a sensual experience. So it connects the mind and body. And then even beyond that, it's a drug. So unlike food, it will give you a high, a buzz. And I love the three aspects of that, the mind, the body, and the buzz. Why is wine sexy and like beer, vodka, and tequila are not? (laughs) Before sexy, I'd say communal, because I think wine is the drink of civilization and of slow conversation. And for many people, slow conversation is sexy. You don't knock back a Cabernet the way you would with a vodka shooter. You don't get a six-pack of Chardonnay, at least most people don't, the way you would with beer. Because wine is meant to be consumed slowly, often with dinner and with friends. And so I find that lends itself to a lot more sensual enjoyment. Is it possible to pair fish with a red wine? Yes, it is. Feel free. (laughs) This is your license to chill. So if you look at different types of fish, meatier ones like tuna and salmon, almost cry out for a more full-bodied wines. Now you can get full-bodied whites and I, you know, your Chardonnays and so on, but I love a Pinot Noir, which is a medium bodied red that's smooth, doesn't have a lot of tannins, that furry mouth feeling you get from walnuts and it's beautifully paired. But then again, fish, like every other protein is the blank canvas often. And so it's how you prepare it, what sauce you use, how you cook it. So chicken is even more of a chameleon. But if you're going to plank grill that salmon, it's going to have that charry, smoky taste that's going to go even better with that Pinot Noir. And perhaps that Pinot's had a little bit of oak aging, which will also give it a touch of smoky, smoky taste aromas. You said smoky? Can I go Zinfandel? Oh, with the fish? Yeah. Yeah, especially if you did like a blackened fish or a spice rub or something like that. Again, it's about the dominant flavors in your dish matching what's on your plate with what's in your glass. So yeah, if you're going to go all the way with a really dark and spicy kind of fish, Zinfandel would be great because Zinfandel is not only full-bodied and full of these rich, juicy, fleshy, ripe, dark fruit, it also is smooth. So it doesn't have those tannins, which do not play nicely with the iodine in fish. Why does Chianti work with tomato-based foods? What grows together goes together. So Italian cuisine was developed over centuries, as was Italian wine. And some of the similar soil weather characteristics will come out in both. So Chianti has a natural, enlivening, sort of nervy, edgy acidity. And that's what you get in a lot of tomato sauces, from the acidity in the, in the tomatoes. And so they are companions and often equal in weight and flavor and body. 
How many mistakes do you have to make to get really good at this? <laughs> many. I'm still making them. I'm wondering if like talking here today is one of them. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I always think of myself as an enthusiastic amateur. I'll never think of myself as an expert, no matter how many people tell me I am one. I just stay 10% ahead in knowledge of those I'm trying to teach. And I try to be open about that on my own podcast, Unreserved Wine Talk, because then I feel like listeners, whether they are experts or beginners, will also feel like less intimidated and that you can ask the so-called naive or stupid questions of which there are none, of course. But you know, when I'm talking to someone, a winemaker or sommelier or whatever on my podcast, I'll say, well, wait a minute, can you tell me what that is? You know, malolactic fermentation, carbonic maceration. It's not a technical show, by the way, but sometimes these words come out and I like to stop and say, okay, just let's back up. What does that mean in real terms or in lay people's terms so that we can understand what uh, what you're talking about? The wine industry has suffered from being too inside, being quite snobby. I get the feeling that we're constantly trying to break down the walls of the whole thing and it can come down to ratings and it can come down to regions. And there's, there seems to be a lot of prejudices against certain maybe grapes or regions. Has the industry done better to bring it together? There are certainly still a lot of stratifications and hierarchies and classifications and scores and, you know, price drives prestige auctions, you know, and so on. So it's a world that is still enmeshed in that quite a bit. But things are changing. These are broad generalizations, but I think, you know, that a whole lot more <laughs> needs to be done. I mean, Bordeaux, for example, one of the most prestigious regions in France, still sells its wines based largely on the 1855 classification that largely based the quality of wines based on the prices they were fetching then. So it's an entrenched kind of categorization. Whereas if you think about it, wine itself is cyclical and circular and seasonal from the harvest to the, you know, cropping of the grapes and then the cane pruning in winter and so on. It goes around and comes around just as it does in your glass when you're swirling it. How have your tastes changed over the years? Maybe that you were in your thirties, you were hot and heavy on a particular brand or grape, and maybe that doesn't work later in life. Have you changed your taste at all? Yes, I used to try to get the most bang for my buck. So I thought the most more alcohol the wine has, the better it must be, because the faster I'm going to get a buzz. And so I loved full-bodied Australian Shiraz. And caveat now, not all Australian Shiraz is high alcohol. There are lots that are made with good balance and moderate alcohol. But my Tastes have changed over time, just as my taste in music has changed, in movies, in men. <laughs> and I like something that's more balanced, not all muscle up front, a little bit more intellectual. Like Pinot Noir, it is the heartbreak grape for a reason, in that it's really difficult to grow. And the, so the self-described pathological optimists who make this wine do it because they consider it kind of a holy grail because when it's when it's good it's great it's sublime it's a it's a taste experience that you won't forget and often i remember who i was with where we were even what i was wearing i mean it just goes straight to memory and when it's bad it's terrible just awful it can be 
unripe green vegetable, just the. So I love that excitement, that sort of wine on the verge of a nervous breakdown. It's more interesting just as it is with people. So, you know, I find like Cabernet is solid and steady and can be boring. Not all of them, of course, but Pinot Noir, you have that thrill of, is it going to be great or terrible? And so I have changed in that respect in that I am a pathological optimist who keeps ordering and buying Pinot Noir. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holawati from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Cryer Media Network. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. It's said that the more time you have to invest, the greater the return. Well, guess what? Kids have the most time if we learn to invest early. That's why I created the Cash Kid Podcast, where I teach kids and some adults financial skills they need to know on how to earn, save, and invest their money. Join me on this journey as we interview experts and explore topics that allow you to grow your money as kids. Just remember, anyone can be a Cash Kid. You just have to learn how to become one. Get ready to grow your financial knowledge and your wallet with the Cash Kid Podcast. That's right. Find us at thecashkidpodcast.com or listen in on places like Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, or YouTube. You may also like Supports Podcasting 2.0, so feel free to send us a boost if you are listening on a newer podcast app. If you don't have one, you can see a full list of them at newpodcastapps.com. So my taste did change and I got away from Shiraz and I began to sort of move away from, I actually just turned my nose right up at Chardonnay. It's just too oaky for me. I just can't deal with it. What can I do to drink wine? That's not going to cause a hangover because some wines you're left with an extra heartbeat in your head right behind the eye and other wines, nothing. (laughs) What is that? It's individual to body chemistry. A lot of people think the sulfites in wine are doing it, but there are more sulfites in a glass of orange juice than there are in a whole bottle of wine. There's, I think it's less than 5% of the population is allergic to sulfites and they need to take it seriously. But most of us are not reacting to sulfites. Some of us are reacting to histamines in wine, and that's often associated with red wine that's been oak-aged, and it gives you that sort of runny 
but also the congestion, the headache, that sort of thing. It could be the tannins. Again, that usually comes from oak, but it can also come from the actual grape skins and stems, depending on how it was made. But I think you have to experiment and see what happens. Now, the other thing that can cause that raging headache is just too much of any wine. So you want to think about that as well in terms of consumption. But the, the headache is also associated with dehydration. So you want to, what, what, what I do at least, is alternate a glass of wine for a glass of water so that you stay hydrated. It also helps slow your consumption um, and you're not slaking your thirst simply on alcohol like at dinner or whatever which is tempting. But yeah, I, I would just experiment with it, Matt. When should I summon the sommelier? I love to summon the sommelier if there is one at the restaurant right up front when we're looking at the restaurant list, because a good restaurant list will have wines that you probably have never tasted. And I include myself in that because they want to give you a taste experience that you can't get easily in the liquor store and keep you coming back to the restaurant. So the sommelier or the person who buys the wine, or some server, or the bartender, whoever bought bought the wines, is going to know more about that list and have tasted those wines, generally speaking, than you have, even if you are a so-called expert. So I love to summon the sommelier up front early to select a wine. And for those who are intimidated about what do I ask, again, it's similar to when you go in the store, you can say, well, you know, we had this Malbec from Argentina, if you remember the name, say it, that will give that person an idea of your taste and range, your price range. If you were on a date or it's a business dinner and you don't want to declare out loud how much you want to pay for love or a promotion, you could tip the restaurant list up facing you and the server or the psalm is usually over your shoulder and you can be pointing to the prices, but you can say, I'd like something in this range. What do you recommend? So that's just a sneaky tip there. But yeah, engage because the sommelier or server is going to be excited if they have a decent list about, you know, sharing something with you and hopefully a story. So I think every book and every bottle has a story as well. I know exactly what you're saying too, because I will sit down and I will go through the, they now bring you an iPad for many places. It's a whole new way to swipe right. And I'll, go, <laughs> I'll go through and I'll look at all the wines. And then I realize these people around me know more than I do about this stuff. So why don't I let them just pick it for me? Give them some guideposts price, style, what you're going to have, the, you know, because they can try to pair it. But um, yeah, it's fun. And and if you can, if they have like a tasting menu where you can have a different glass of wine with each course, that's, that's even better because then you're starting to really learn about the differences between wines. I'm a French wine snob. Is that okay? <laughs> it's okay. I, I feel like I'm starting to become your Venus agony aunt. <laughs> Pretty like much. Confessions, wine confessions. <laughs> so you're a French wine snob. So tell me, Matt, when did this start? When did you start feeling this way? <laughs> Probably when I was living in Quebec and the SAQ, which passes out the alcohol in Quebec, just has a great selection of French wines that is unmatched in the rest of Canada. And, and I just got used to it. And then I learned, oh, this is a Bordeaux and this is a Chateau Neuf de Pape. And then here's something from Bourgogne and here's something from the south of France. And have you tried Cahors? I just got into it and I liked it. And I, I, I honestly found it to be better than a few other regions. I've, listen, I've got my favorite wines. I love Italian and I really like Spanish, but I find Spanish wine is very complex. You really got it. They sort of talk about it by the grape. The regions, there's a big region called Rioja, but there's 
smaller regions that just don't advertise very much. So it really adds to the complexity of it. It does. Yeah. So on one hand, that is intimidating and, and complex and hard to figure out. On the other, if you want to take the deep dive, that's fascinating. And you could keep going and learning or tasting and experimenting. But I think especially in Canada and especially in Quebec, French wines are far better known because French wine is complicated too. And it has lots of little regions. I mean, you start, it's like the Russian nesting dolls. You start with France and then you can go to Burgundy and then you can go to Merceau and then you can go to the producer and then the Clo, and then it, it gets right down to who owned those vines. So I think we're perhaps not as familiar with Spanish wines, but they're worth experimenting with as well. I'm just going to list my favorite in the show notes for anybody who does care, by the way. Okay, great. What are you trying to take my job? What are you doing here? <laughs> well, no, you've got the whole podcast. Everyone's going to listen to that going forward. <laughs> Talk about the LCBO and their purchasing power. One of the things I know is that the two biggest purchasers of wine in North America is Costco and the LCBO. Yes. Yeah. And I will find wine at the LCBO that is cheaper than some of the stuff I can actually get 10 miles from the town where it was made. That's purchasing power. So yeah, they are the single largest purchaser or whatever of wine in the world. And that's a curse and a blessing. So they have substantial negotiation power to get those prices down for you. But again, the, the pleasure of wine is in its diversity. So we don't have stores like Tuscany is us kind of thing, or, you know, specialty producers, or shops, wine shops, the way we might if it were privatized. And you can think about it a little bit like, you know, there's Amazon, and then there's independent bookstores, and then I guess Indigo is somewhere in the middle there. But would you rather have that diversity? Some people would, but others wouldn't. They say, oh, no, you know what? I like that they're negotiating for me, but they are also choosing for you, and they do have a broad selection, but not as broad as it would be if we had a privatized system. So I've had some favorite wines over the last 20 years, and I grew out of them. And I can't figure out if that's me or is that climate change or does it just happen to be that vintage? And I'll use the example, by the way, because I saw it on your website, and that's a Chilean wine called uh, Irazuiz. And I love the Cab Sauvin and bought it by the case about 20 years ago. Then I just stopped. And maybe it's me or maybe it's the vintage or maybe it's climate change. What do you think? Or maybe it's all three. <laughs> but Chile actually uh, has a very consistent climate. They're blessed with a lot of natural good things when it comes to wine. They have the snow melt from the Andes, so they don't have to irrigate. They have this nice warm climate, unlike Canada, where we are challenged with a cool climate, which makes winemakers work a little harder with mold and mildew and rot, and then certain varieties don't ripen here. So the climate's pretty consistent. The winemaker can or the winery can always change decisions about how the wine is made with more oak, less oak or whatever. But your palate does change as you age and change in all kinds of different ways. So it could be everything. And climate change is certainly affecting wine regions everywhere. Although it's not what you might think. They call it instead of global warming, global weirding, because we're getting more extreme weather events like hail in summer that can kill the bud shoot or in the spring that can kill the bud shoot, all kinds of things. And so people think, oh, Canada, that must be good for you. Global warming, you're, you know, but not, not always because what we're getting are extreme temperatures up and down. So the, the average doesn't really hint at the extremes. It's just this sort of average going up of warmth 
but those extreme events can really wreak havoc on a harvest. I'm going to be traveling to two places where they make wine that you would never guess they necessarily make wine. So I'm going to be going to an urban winery in Denver, Colorado. And I don't know what it is about Colorado, but they do have a wine scene. And I see tons of people from Colorado tour Europe and just drink wine. And then I'm going to be going to Nova Scotia. Ah, yay. My hometown, <laughs> home province. Yeah. I'm going to be going to Grand Pre. Oh, lovely. And Wolfville, where all of a sudden, 30 years after I graduated from Acadia University, they've got wine in the hills. What do you think about it? Have you tried it? Oh, yeah. They've got some wonderful wines down there. So it's even cooler than Niagara and the Okanagan. But what they're doing so well with sparkling wines, because champagne is is very cool as well, like, you know, Bordeaux and the Rhone and so on are southern France. But they've got conditions that are very similar to champagne. So they've got the limestone soils, which makes the grapes or the vines suffer, which is good for vines, like people, makes them stronger. And they're producing these crisp, mouthwatering, sparkling wines. And then they've got another type of wine called Tidal Bay, which a number of wineries make, named after the Bay of Fundy and the highest tides of the world. And it is an off-dry, meaning a touch of sweetness, floral white wine that is to die for with steamed lobster, shellfish, seafood. They also do other crisp, still white wines very well from hybrid grapes. And then they do some reds okay. It's hard to get ripening down there, but the Pinot Noirs and some of the hybrid grapes, the German grapes that came across with a lot of the vintners who are down there, their ancestors, do well. Yeah, so Nova Scotia, that will be great. I mean, my goodness, Benjamin Bridge, Light Hall and Wolfville, Domaine de Grand Pre for lunch for sure, and their wines. Yeah, you've got to hit all those. And then Denver, I have nothing to say. <laughs> I don't have any advice, but yeah, it's a great wine scene. Is there a wine that pairs with Indian curries that is not called beer? <laughs> yes, there is. So Indian curries can be spicy or hot or both. And so what you need is sweet meets heat. So you need a wine that has a little bit of sweetness to deal with the spice and the heat. Because if you put spicy or hot dishes with a high alcohol, highly tannic, especially red wine, you will be crying in your beer, no doubt. So you want something like a Riesling. I don't think a Gewurztraminer has enough acidity, but something with a little acidity, a little natural sweetness, and that you chill it. So it's going to, you know, be like a fire hose on your palate and, and calm it down. Um, otherwise, you're adding fuel to the fire. So I would go with those kinds of wines with that. So the Shiraz I was pairing it with was a big mistake. It's okay if you don't, if it's not high alcohol. Shiraz is smooth, so that's good. It's not tannic. And if you're a dedicated red wine lover, then a smooth red is your way to go. It just, it might taste like heat on heat, depending on the Shiraz. Why did you start a podcast? Because I wanted to be even nosier than I already am. And I'm an introvert, so I need an excuse to talk to people. And this allows me to contact just about anybody in the wine world or adjacent fields like food and travel and so on and say, hey, come talk to me for an hour on my podcast. And I get to ask them impertinent questions that I would never ask at a dinner party. I get to pry into their lives the way I can when I travel for wine. And I meet the most interesting, thought-provoking people in the world. Because again, I think wine can teach you about the world 
and you can see it through the rose colored glasses. So that's what I love. I love, I love the art of interviewing too. You know, I, I listen to people like Larry King or old recordings of Larry King or other interviewers just to see how they handle what is the question beyond the next question? How do they dig, but still not, you know, turn off the interviewee? How do they, how do they make themselves surrogates for the listener? who can't be there and wants you to ask that question. So I, I just love the whole art of interviewing as well. And you're doing a good job, Matt. Thanks. I love interviewing. My favorite, by the way, is Terry Gross from NPR. Oh, yes, yes. She's a perfectionist, yeah. She spoke at Podcast Movement one year. She did? Wow. She did. And she she, she told me what, everything I needed to know. I'd already done a lot of interviews. I've interviewed Mick Jagger. I've interviewed just endless people, just every rock star, you name them. But yeah, I mean, again, it started, you know, it starts out, we're going to talk about this and it winds up being, now we're doing armpit farts. Very <laughs> <laughs> I mean, gross? No, I was doing it with a, with a band once, but um, <laughs> okay. you know, I, I do think the two best interviewers out there are Howard Stern and Terry Gross. Yes. I listen to Howard Stern, even though I am not aligned with a lot of his views, but man, he knows how to give a good interview. Well, I yeah. it's out there from a few years ago when the book came out. The two of them interviewed each other. At least she interviewed him, and it was it was gold. Oh, I got to look for that. Yeah, I'll see if I can find it for you for sure. Who was your favorite interview? So many, but I love the thought provoking conversation I had with Randall Graham of Bonnie Dune in California, and Charles Back of Fairview Wines, also Goats Do Rome in South Africa, also Anne Sperling. There's so many, but I guess what they, they do is they tell stories. And of course, that's how we learn. That's how we remember things that goes straight into, I think it taps into our memory, our emotions. The majority of people I interview on my podcast are writers writing about wine or food because they're storytellers. Some winemakers are I'm going to get in trouble if winemakers listen to this, but anyway, but I don't want to talk to someone about the differences between Hungarian, American, and French oak, or the tightness of the grains. I want to know stories that will illuminate the world of wine, whether it's drinking it, appreciating it, traveling to those regions, whatever, all the aspect, everything that goes on around and inside the glass without getting technical. So those people just, they did that. They dove into stories. Natalie, thanks so much for telling me all about wine. Oh, cheers, Matt. And, you know, you can call me anytime. I Think of me as your, well, if not your Venus Agonyant, then your red-nosed superhero. I'm, I'm here for you. Thanks so much. My thanks to Natalie McLean for joining me on the show. You can go hit the follow button on her podcast now. It's called the Unreserved Wine Talk Podcast, and it's everywhere you expect a podcast would be. I also put links to her website where you can sign up for her newsletter and buy her books. They're in the show notes and at youmayalsolike.net. This episode was produced by Evan Serminski and edited by Chloe Emon Lane and built for your ears by everyone at the Sound Off Media Company. Looking to make the most out of this life and optimize your personal wellness? Then check out the Natural Man podcast. Join me, host Mike C, as we explore all areas of human wellness physical, mental, and emotional. Learn strategies to optimize your own well being and be in the driver's seat of your own health. Remember, your doctor works for you. Learn biohacks, neurohacks, ways to improve sleep 
and ways to optimize your body and your mind. Check us out on Apple, Spotify, the Fountain App, and at naturalmanpodcast.com. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many rogues that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com.